Flashing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. You have to understand in Venezuela, gun ownership is not something that is open to everybody. So if the military have the guns, they have the power. And as long as Nicolas Maduro controls the military, he controls the country. Joe Biden was there for the issue. He was there for the time that um, the Chinese built the stationary islands in the South China Sea, which are essentially aircraft carriers. They've put military radars on it, put military combat planes on them. Uh, and so Joe Biden's got a lot to answer for. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome, welcome, welcome. StaceyOnTheRight.com is where you can hit the subscribe button. You can go to UrbanFamilyTalk.com and AFR.net. We'd love to have you, uh, you know, get our newsletters and, and get our content all the time. This hour on the program, we're going to be chatting with Pastor Miles McPherson. He's a pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego. He's also the author of several books and a former NFL player for the San Diego Chargers. He's going to join us to talk about his latest book, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. And uh, I met Pastor McPherson at the uh, National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And when we met, I said, hey, you know, I'd love to have you come on the program. And so he signed his book over to me. If you're watching on the live stream, I'm holding it up. And he wrote, well, he signed it over to my son because I asked him to, because I I wanted the copy. I bought the copy for him. And it says, God bless you, Miles. And then he signs it, Miles. (laughs) Uh, And he puts the verse in here, 1 John 4.20. 1 John 4.20 is in the uh, King James. If a man says, I love God. And hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So that is part of the foundational principle that you're going to find in the book. And so he's going to come on and talk about that. He was the speaker at a breakfast that uh, Madison and I attended while we were there. And I tell you what, it was, it was unexpected. The first, I'd say maybe six or seven minutes of his speech I was just sitting there listening like, what is, where is he going with this? Like, where is he going with this? So the reason I'm recounting that to you now is because I don't want you to get turned off by what you're going to hear him say. I want you to hear him and hear his heart on this matter. Um, We do need reconciliation and the reconciliation that we need is man to man and it only comes from Jesus Christ. And by man to man, I mean human to human. Um, And so the, the way that he frames it, It's a little different than you may have heard before, but it goes back to the gospel and what God has for us. And I think it's, it's good for us to, we, we got to hear these things and then try them in the scriptures and pray about them and see what God has for us because God will speak to us and let us know in what direction he would have us to go. So it's going to be a good interview. It's really exciting to chat with him. He's an impressive backstory in his career and everything. We'll get into that as well. So. What are we going to be talking about right now? Well, you heard a little smidgen of it, but I want you to hear the whole bit. So, you know, the Venezuela story is still, it's crazy what's going on down there. And I really have just a lot of sympathy for the Venezuelan people, even though they, they went, they did the classic order. Hey, they want us to give up our guns. Okay. Hey, we should nationalize all of our, okay. Hey, we should, um, you know, Vote someone who's a socialist who's promising all these government programs. And now they're literally fighting for their lives. And it's because socialism always leads to this. 
Dictators always have to kill the people when they rise up because they're starving. They don't have anything else they can do. The, the toolbox for socialism is not replete with ideas that work. If it did, all these socialist countries that you see around the country that are really only working because they're subsidized militarily by the United States, they'd be crumbling as well. You take away the military subsidies from the United States and all of our active duty service members and contractors and civilians working and living and boosting these economies. You take all that away and you see what's happening in Venezuela would be happening all over the place for those countries that are socialist in kind of their social policies and they're socialists in their health care, which means they don't have good health care, but they use capitalism in the other areas in their free market then they're not truly socialist countries. They're just countries that have horrible social policy, but they operate as capitalist countries. They don't nationalize the means of production, but they do everything else. You see, see how that works? So I wish everybody was forced to have the accurate description of what they were running as a country instead of everybody claiming, you know, all these Western countries saying we're socialists. Yeah, they're not totally socialist. Otherwise, they would not be functioning. So here is this MSNBC reporter He's talking about the Venezuelans getting run down in the streets by their own government. It's number five. He appears to still control the military. You have to understand in Venezuela, gun ownership is not something that is open to everybody. So if the military have the guns, they have the power. And as long as Nicolas Maduro controls the military, he controls the country. And Wang Guaido and his supporters have tried to peacefully protest. They have gathered in large numbers. What we saw today when he met early this morning and stood there in front of those wearing uniforms appear to be rank and file members who may have switched their allegiance. We have seen over the recent months those who have switched their allegiance, but not en masse. We have not seen large numbers of the troops in Venezuela switching their allegiance from Nicolas Maduro to Juan Guaido. So it, without the military, they don't have the ability to continue to maintain the reign of Nicolas Maduro. Uh, but notice this guy who's a hardcore leftist, he even had to make the point that if the citizens were armed, the military wouldn't be able to do that. And I don't think that our military uh, would do things like this to us. I don't think that because our military is obviously it's full of Americans. Um, but I, I got to say, I, any, this can happen in any country. And so it may, it may not be feasible or something that we can imagine now where we are now at this point in our history where our military is. But in a future where we've taken all the guns away from the citizens and a future where, you know, we have a socialist dictator running the country, then those are not going to be the same military types that, that we have right now. It's a different shift in everything. Everyone is different at that point. And that's what conservatism is working hard to fight. That's what we're fighting as Christians. We don't want a government that can assume control over uh, the different parts of our, our lives, making us vulnerable to attack in our personal lives by disarming us, making us unable to speak the truth, especially for those of us who are Christians, who we're speaking the truth from the word of God. We don't want that. That's, that's what we're fighting against. And so Venezuela is a cautionary tale. Now, speaking of um, the second amendment, I thought this was a fascinating story. You've got this guy who is totally mentally ill. And again, he doesn't get name checked here on the show. 
he's running around um, carjacking and he has after he needs more ammunition. So he drives over to a Walmart in a car that he's just carjacked. He gets out and goes in and shoots the glass out of the ammunition case and takes some ammunition. People in the Walmart, are, they hear the pops, they're running and whatnot. He gets back out into the car, to the, uh, to the parking lot and he starts shooting people in the parking lot. He's trying to carjack another vehicle. So he shoots this father and son while they're sitting in the car and they put the car in reverse and he backs up a little bit and then the assailant, the carjacker, gets shot. The person who shot him is a pastor who's also a firearms expert. He shot him and killed him. The Everyone from the news people all the way down to the people in the, the parking lot who were shot, the people... Er, People all over are saying that this pastor prevented a mass shooting someplace else because the guy had come and basically, you know, he, he shot the glass out of that, that ammo case and stole all that ammunition. Who knows what he was going to go and do with it? The pastor has been called a hero. Now, they haven't released the pastor's name, but there was another armed citizen on the scene and he actually ran up as well. Um, he saw the pastor shoot the armed man who was shooting into the vehicles. And when he saw that, he said, Oh my goodness, you know, I'm wow. I'm, I'm here to help. I can. And the pastor said, can you secure this area for me? And so he secured the area and the pastor kind of retreated because what you're supposed to do is, is if you have to use your firearm, you're supposed to then put it down you have to stay by it to make sure no one else can use it, but you need to, you know, kind of have your hands up and be in the neutral position when the police arrive or they'll think you're the one who's doing the wrong deed. So um, there's a process to that. So there's a, a Tumwater spokesman um, talking about this incident, what they were tweeting out about the story. And it's, uh, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful example of good guy with a gun who's on the spot, who takes care of innocent people. Um, the guy who was shot in the neck, the dad, he's he's paralyzed. He, I mean, this is a terrible, terrible situation. And you just have to wonder how many more people would have been injured uh, or maimed had that pastor not been quick on his feet and armed and ready to go when he saw this unfolding in front of him in this parking lot. Uh, and it was a Walmart parking lot, if I'm not mistaken. They've also set up a GoFundMe account for the victims of the shooting and, um, I'll definitely post a story on Facebook if you want to read it for yourself. But it's it's just, again, disarmament is never the answer. It's the, the answer that we need is we need more Christians activated out there working in, in the world, in our nation, um, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and getting it out there so that we can change the lives and the hearts of more people. And when we do that, then then we see the results of that, the, the outgrowth of that. Trying to address this through taking things away from law-abiding citizens like firearms or, um, you know, taking companies away from people who run companies, that's just not it. That's, that's not the way we want to go. So um, call lines are open, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So you've, and I did mention but I just want to stress, since because we're all in the Second Amendment here, um, that this, the, the taking of the guns back in 
in 2012 in Venezuela has, is what's made this whole thing possible. It's, it's the foundation to what you see in Venezuela right now. Without them giving up their guns, they would be able to defend themselves. They would be able to rise up. The fact that employees can rise, or not employees, citizens can rise up, makes it so that government officials behave differently. Just, to, just here in our country, look at the kind of violence that conservatives are putting up with, are probably armed to the teeth and not doing anything about it, from Antifa members and deranged Democrats suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. Let's look at it. Imagine how much worse it would be if they didn't think we were armed. They, they don't think about it. It's clear that they don't think about it when they're punching people in the face and screaming and pouring drinks on them in, in restaurants. They're not thinking about it. But imagine if those who are even more violent than the ones we're currently dealing with thought that everybody in the country was unarmed. Wow, things would be so different. It would be such a travesty what we would be experiencing. So the, the key is obviously... We want to get the gospel out there. We want to speak the truth in love. We want to turn people away from the negative path, the downward spiral, and we want to put them on the path to, you know, eternal victory. But just like the disciples had swords, (laughs) you know, they were armed. um, We can be armed too. It's up to us to make that decision for ourselves, but we have the right to do that because of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which in the Second Amendment gives us the right to keep and bear arms and that that right won't be infringed. So the, these stories kind of connect up and, and let us know that we're in the right spot. Um, now, again, once you go down that path, um, you have still some guns on the streets in Venezuela. It's not that there are no guns in the country. But the only people who have them are criminals. So people who are willing to break the law have guns. Now, are all of these criminal lawbreakers in the area of guns, are they all terrible people? Well, it's up to you to kind of navigate that, isn't it? How how would you know? They don't have the right to own guns anymore. Their country is in a shambles. Criminals who have guns get to take over and kind of control the situation. And of course, the military and the police who are all under the, the auspices of the dictator. This is not someplace we want to go. Right when we get back, we'll have Miles McPherson. He's the pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, former NFL player. Right after this. Our Holy Land tour for March of 2020 is set. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Last year, we sold out in August. And I expect us to do that again this year. There is such a high demand, especially among Christians in America, to see Israel, the land of the Bible. So we're going again in March on our annual trek. So I wanted to go ahead and let you know if you want to sign up and register, get more information, whatever the case may be. If you want to go to our website, twholyland.com, twholyland.com, everything is there, TW holyland.com. You can even print off a brochure from that website. It's going to be a wonderful time visiting Israel with brothers and sisters from across our country as we go to the Holy Land in March. So go ahead and get signed up now, twholyland.com. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Today is the National Day of Prayer. It is a vital part of our American heritage. The first call to prayer happened before the American Revolution. In 1775, the Continental Congress called on the colonists to pray for wisdom as they considered how they would respond to the King of England. Perhaps one of the most powerful calls to prayer came from President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. In 1863, he issued a proclamation for a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Here is some of that proclamation. He said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. In 1952, Congress passed and President Harry Truman signed a resolution declaring an annual National Day of Prayer. In 1988, President Reagan signed into law a bill that designated the first Thursday of May at the time for a National Day of Prayer. It is estimated that there have been more than 130 national calls to prayer, humiliation, fasting, and thanksgiving by presidents of the United States. There have been 60 presidential proclamations for a National Day of Prayer because every president has signed these proclamations. Today is the National Day of Prayer. Please pray for this nation and its leaders. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Uh, we do not have our guest just yet, but we will definitely work on getting our guest in uh, just a couple of minutes. Um, at this point, though, I would love to go to a little bit of audio that we have here. Um, it's one of the Democrats talking about Medicare for all and how that bill would kill one million private insurance jobs. Um, kind of crazy. Um Definitely not something that we want to see happen. A million jobs. Can you imagine what that would do to the GDP and what, you know, all of our, our economic metrics? Yet this is what they're leading with over on the left. Um, it's number two. But I think that's very important. And then the other thing I want to say is there, there are a lot of people who work in the private insurance industry. We have thought very carefully about how we take care of those folks because we think they're very important. And so there's about a million people that we think will be displaced if Medicare for All happens. We have set aside 1% a year of the total cost of the bill for five years to take care of a transition for those employees in the private insurance sector so that they can either, if they're you know, able to retire, that might be one, pension guarantees, job training, they can move into a different system. Hmm. So we all know how that works. Now, I've been in high support of the... Um, We've seen this wonderful job training push from the White House, and you've seen all these companies say that they're willing to invest in job training for employees, and that's great. But to intentionally push a million people out of work 
and then expand the government in ways that we, we actually can't afford, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So again, getting the, the, the whole issue of the, the Medicare for all off to the side, it still leaves us with, um, you know, this, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous, it's just unworkable. The way that, um, the way that we do something like that against the will of the American people, it's again, essentially one of those issues where you can see where Democrats just want to force people into this. They don't care about the 1 million people who would be displaced. They don't care that this kind of disruption to a society, this is something that has to happen naturally, not something that you would force and kind of jerk into the system. It's, it's a disruption. It's something that we don't need. I'll keep giving y'all all the good reasons why we don't need it, all the good answers. I will keep doing that because we have to do it. So uh, during the first hour, we were talking a little bit about this abortion issue where they're saying uh, the caller said she wanted to come in or she, she's got a lo- these laws in her state in Kentucky that are very restrictive on abortion, but they're ignored. And I was talking about the emphasis on praying outside of the clinic and, and the change that it makes. Now, this is not just anecdotal evidence I'm talking about. In the movie Unplanned, we actually see them talking about the, in, in the, the movie, which is based on the real life of Abby Johnson. She said, look, when we have people um, outside praying, we have lower activity inside the clinic. So if you want to stop, if you want to see it come to a halt, you want to see the, the activity there get, get lower, you absolutely have to have people outside praying outside the clinic. And it's not like in the past where abortion opponents were painted as these wild, crazy people. Not at all. It's much more of a situation where the people themselves are out there praying and um, just doing their best and being very kind and sweet and gentle hearted about it. It's nothing negative. It's nothing grotesque. It's nothing, not people jumping up and down or screaming at women. It's prayer. Some of it's out loud. Some of it's silent. Um, so tracking these numbers from 2009, just we're talking about Missouri here. You have um, in 2009, there were 6,881 abortions. And then every year after 2009, you see the number decrease. For 2018, the number of abortions in Missouri was 2,472. That's a huge reduction in the yearly abortion number for the state of Missouri. And they track this with, with the lawmakers have been pro-life, the uh, frontline operators, the, the prayer warriors on the sidewalk, the sidewalk counselors, people who counsel the, the workers at the Pregnancy Resource Center, and then people who donate to the Pregnancy Resource Center and help fund the work that they're doing. And so they also launched a mobile medical service. They have a number of these vans. Um, they're actually like tour buses and uh, RVs that have been converted on the inside to rolling medical centers where you can get all kinds of reproductive testing, basically a full suite of options. And these things are funded through donors and help reduce the abortion rate in the state of Missouri. So 
I will, I have more information on this and I, that I'd love to share with you. Um, but the most important thing for us to do is to make sure that we're praying at home and in front of these clinics and we can get a lot done that way. That That's how God moves and works in, in spite of the laws being ignored. So I hope that helps. Uh, right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Miles McPherson. He's a pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, author of several books, including his new book, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. He was also an NFL player for the San Diego Chargers. Uh, pastor McPherson, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm, I'm holding the book that you signed over to our son in my hand. And when you signed <laughs> it over to him, you said First John 420. Now, and I was telling the listeners when I was kind of previewing you coming on today about how you spoke at the the breakfast and how the first few minutes of your speech, I was kind of sitting there like, oh, my goodness, where's he going with this? Because you're tackling an uncomfortable subject in your latest book. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) So how can we? Hello? Yes. How can we as as Christians actually bridge this divide the the subheading on your book um it's it's a quote by bishop td jakes from the potter's house a discussion about race that we desperately need a must read and the foreword is by drew Brees. why did you write this book well you know we live in such a divided culture us versus them and i wrote the book to give people tools on how to honor the things that we have in common and every race conversation is about us versus them you're always forced to pick one of two sides. This book is the third option, which is that we honor what we have in common. And if we look at all the things that we share, uh, it'll bring us together. We all are 99.5% genetically identical. We're all, we all bleed red. We have a heart, lungs, liver, bones, and muscles, and we're all made in the image of God. And that's a lot of things to focus on um, and to share with one another. And if we can do that, uh, I think we can heal the racial division that exists in our culture. So uh, when you talk about healing the racial division, I always draw a parallel between our interactions with each other because sometimes we're nasty to each other. It has nothing to do with, you know, permanent tan, lack of a permanent tan, and it has everything to do with the heart condition of the person who's dealing out the, the bad behavior and the person receiving it, how they respond, again, heart condition, whether or not they've been you know, connected to Jesus Christ, whether they're living for the Lord. And even when we are, we don't always respond correctly. But you offer some strategies in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think one strategy is to acknowledge that we all have blind spots because we are sinners, the heart of deceitful and desperately wicked. Mm-hmm. We don't even know how biased we are. Uh, we think just because we read the Bible or go to church that what we think and say is, is acceptable, but you know, we can, a person can be racially offensive without necessarily being a racist. And so there are a lot of people out there who think, well, I'm not a racist, so therefore everything I think and say isn't racism or isn't racially offensive. Not only are there people who are racist don't even realize it, but if there are people who aren't racist, but they're still offensive, like saying you don't see color. They see that as something as uniting, but actually it's offensive to people of color because you're basically telling them you ignore what they are. So I think we have to realize that we have blind spots and take an opportunity to learn how to relate to people, learn about the things we don't know about other people, uh, and learn that our perspective on the world is just our perspective. We're one of 7 billion people, so there are 6,999,000,000 other perspectives that are just as legitimate as yours. 
And so you're you're seeking with this book to bring people together because right now politically and, and even outside of politics, the conversations tend to be, you know, I'm this is my group. I got to protect my group. And that's that's your group. Your group doesn't doesn't go well with my group. It's, it's a lot of us versus them. But we share so much in common as Americans and things that should unite us. But we're kind of leave those to the side because the discussion has become strictly about race. Well, we share so much in common as human beings all over the world, even people on the other side of the world. They all want family. They all love food, sleep. They all want to know their purpose in life. So uh, every human being on the planet shares thousands of things in common that we don't recognize. Um, I think one of the solutions, if we can uh, look at people and label them as neighbor, the number one commandment is to love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What we do is we give people labels that are less than neighbor, that dehumanize them, whether they're black label, white label, immigrant label. And once we label them less than neighbor, we give them we give ourselves permission not to love them. And so I think when we look at people, we have to relabel them. That's my neighbor, whether they like me or not, whether I know them or not, whether they look like me or not. That's the standard that God gave us. So that's tough. <laughs> what you're saying, <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? So, you know, Pastor McPherson, you're not coming in here with any easy task. You're talking about um, on top of the frustration from not getting the sleep or whatever, you know, personal issues you have going on and the perceived slight that you may be responding to. You're saying as Christians, you know, because he's called us out from among them as Christians, we are supposed to say, mm, okay. That that didn't feel so hot or that didn't come off right, but that's my neighbor. So I need to I need to, as a form of worship, give them still my best response. Yeah. That's hard work. And, and it, Well, you know what? It, it, it's hard. You could say it's hard, but if I'm Jesus, I'm saying, let me let me put it in miles of words. But let me speak for the Lord. What the heck do you think I gave you the Holy Spirit for? <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. of, of, of course, if, this is, if it was easy, we, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And yeah. send the spirit of God into our life. So, of course, this is this is the, this is like Christianity 101, mm. and that's why we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Pray, humble ourselves before Him, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. This is exactly what the entire Bible is about. You know, the greatest commandment, the number one above every other commandment, is to love God, and the second's like it. And He said, if you can't mm. do that, you need to. You just slow your roll and start and go back to the beginning. And so, yeah, I mean, of course. But, you know, it's, it's not really that hard. I think it's, we don't do it. And the devil has deceived us to think it's so hard and we're, and we're scared. But how could it, why should it be so difficult to love people? We were created for that very reason. Mm. People are wonderful. Yeah. And we talk ourselves out of building relationships. We think those people are scary and those people are that. When, you know, if you, if you took the time to talk to somebody and hear their story, you would realize, man, they're just like me. Mm. Okay, well, I want to go over this last. We have about two minutes left in this interview, and I can't let it go without. I'm on the third option, your book. On page 128, you talk about redefining fear. And you take the word fear and you break it down as an acronym with F meaning face the facts. And then you have E, get educated about the other. A, be accountable to affirm one another. And then 
are build relationships, recognizing the image of God in everyone. Yeah, everybody, think about it. Every single human was made in the image of God. That means every single person is created for the purpose of responding to the love of God. They can't mm-hmm. not respond to the love of God. And, and, and you and I were made for the same reason. And so if, you, if we were focused on that and appeal to the image of God in people and love people, don't treat them like animals that you feel like you have to beat to get to obey, which, by the way, you don't necessarily do have to do that either. Mm-hmm. But treat right. people like <laughs> human beings. I know. <laughs> treat people like human beings. Love them, encourage them, and uh, pray for them. Uh, talk about Jesus to them. Mm-hmm. There's something in them that's going to respond even against their will. They can't. The Holy Spirit's going to blast them, and they're going to, whether in your presence or when they're laying in bed that night, something's going to happen in their life. So we need to, we need to uh, take the lead that Jesus gave us to love everyone unconditionally. Mm. So I love that because you're taking the, the, like when I was saying it's so hard and you said, well, it, obviously we need the Holy Spirit, but it's not too hard for us to do. Otherwise God wouldn't have told us to do it because he doesn't give us things that are too hard for us to do. He has equipped us. But you're also talking about the, the humanity factor, which we even do that to ourselves. We even do dehumanize ourselves in the way that we communicate with ourselves mentally, the way we kind of self-talk that's negative. And then we turn that outwards and we do it to other people. And what you're saying is grab the gospel because the word of Jesus Christ is powerful and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. All we have to do is be open and willing to treat people as the, as the word has told us we must do as our neighbors. And then the rest of it kind of flows out from that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the verse says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think people need to realize as the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And if we're treating people bad, that means there's something defective about how we see ourselves. And it's an indictment on our own uh, love for self or lack of love for self. And so, you know, we dehumanize ourself when we are critical of others. And we insult the image of God in ourselves when we discriminate. We think we're exercising power, but really we're demonstrating weakness. Mm. All right, Pastor McPherson, you could go on and preach, but I hear the music. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your time today. Pastor McPherson, I'm going to put the link to uh, purchase the book. I already got my copy. And thank you for your time today. Yes, the third option, go to Amazon, the third option. God bless you. All right, God bless. Talk to you again soon. We'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see 
these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And you know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with Eight Days of Hope. Miki Addison. My challenge to you was to evangelize your children and to disciple your children and to give them the truth. Because if you don't do that, then we have a culture that's waiting in the wings to disciple your kids and to make converts. And so I really believe and I expect the Lord to really set some people free today. The Marriage, Family and Life Conference is coming June 20th through 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called TuneIn. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. This is House Call for Health. A promising new treatment for peanut allergies may not be as promising as hoped. Peanut allergies happen when the immune system wrongly detects peanuts as harmful and causes a strong allergic reaction, which could include difficulty breathing. The treatment is called oral immunotherapy. Children are exposed to tiny amounts of peanut products to retrain the immune system. The therapy has shown success with many allergic children building up tolerance, but in an article published in The Lancet, researchers found that while the therapy worked well in many cases, some people developed allergic reactions and a small percentage experienced breathing problems known as anaphylaxis. Researchers say they're not recommending that immunotherapy be stopped, but they think more studies are needed to figure out a way to more safely treat peanut allergies. For more health news, go to foxnewshealth.com. House Call for Health, I'm Joy Piazza, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I, I, I really, I hope that people take that interview in the spirit in which it was given. Um, Cause I, as I was sitting there listening to him when he was giving the speech at that breakfast at NRB, he just, um, he's speaking from the heart and he has that, you know, that, that credibility coming from his backstory. Cause when he was in the NFL, he actually battled a drug problem and then left the NFL and went out into uh, seminary school. And he got a degree in theology and then started the church that he now pastors, which is an enormous church, uh, 12,000 members over five services each weekend. And it's in San Diego, uh, California, a place that really needs godly people to minister and to bring people to the Lord. And so when he started speaking, and especially since he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, from the NFL background and he was cracking jokes about, you know, because of the way that he appears, his, his, you know, his physical form, a lot of people wonder, you know, well, what are you, what, what background are you? And he says, you know, I'm a human being, I'm a child of God. And then of course he will share his background, but he, he cracked a lot of jokes about that. And it was, it was disarming because the subject matter is very hard. And I know, 
I don't know anybody, to be honest with you, that when the subject of race comes up, we, you know, people don't retreat into their own corner, even among friends, because people are tired of being called racist. People are tired of feeling that they've been subjected to racism. People are tired of talking about it. Uh, So it's a tough subject, but he's got on the back, you know, where they normally have the blurbs, you have a lot of people that we've heard of before, you know, who've who've come alongside him and they're supporting the book and and what the book says and and kind of just to get us to go back to that original great commission that Jesus has given to us. We're, We're to make disciples of all men, which means we're not just getting along with each other, which is already, uh, you know, people feel like getting along is insurmountable. It's not. He made an excellent point there. But it's also not just the getting along, but for us as Christians, it's being able to be kind enough and sweet enough in our presentation that we could tell someone about Jesus Christ and that they would hear it and want to know more, to open that door or plant that seed as it were so that the Holy Spirit could do the rest of the work. So um, it's not too hard for us to do. It's not too difficult for us. We can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a great, it's a great way for us to start just kind of resetting the way we see each other. I notice what, what I see when I'm out and running around, the most frequent thing I see is people being kind to each other, people treating each other like people. Um, we do have a little bit of an issue with our news media painting at America as a place where everybody's at each other's throats and we're all fighting about this issue or that issue. There are a lot of serious issues facing our country, but I do think we have just an amazing ability to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to each other through serving each other and loving each other as neighbors. It's, it's possible and we should get back to it. So I thought that was a, it's a, it's a, it's a great book. I haven't, of course, I haven't made it all the way through, but uh, what I've read so far has been very encouraging, just like the speech was. It was a, it was a good speech. Um, so now um, I want to get back to, and we were discussing this just a tad, um, but I want to make some points about what has been happening with the president. So I think what we've seen um, with the conclusion of the Mueller investigation is obviously we have people temper tantruming over on one side, but uh, do you guys remember a few months ago we were, well, I, I want to say this happened a couple of times over the past two years. We were saying there were the, all of these Democrats saying they wanted bills. They wanted to be able to stop the president. They wanted a law passed in Congress. They wanted something to stop the president from firing Mueller. They didn't even want him to be able to fire Rosenstein. And they weren't getting that. They were like, you know, the Republicans were like, you're not getting that. But the president had to make the decision that he was just going to ride this thing out. And at some point, he was entertaining, you know, firing Mueller. But in the end, he didn't. He wrote it out. And so because of that, he is the most vetted president in the history of this country. Because the investigation that was launched against him during the campaign that ran all the way through the first two years of his presidency, they turned over every rock and he came out clean. I think it's important for us to make that point. If we're going to sit up and listen to people continually rail about the possibility of still impeaching him, the possibility of still having uh, more investigations, I don't, I don't see why the president has to continue to cooperate. In the beginning, I hated the idea of him cooperating, but I was fine with it because it was a special counsel, even if the appointment came from, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree and all that good jazz. And now here we are. 
we have the president who's been investigated. They were unable to indict him or charge him with anything. And because of that, he can go forward with his, his agenda as best as can be done, you know, with divided government. But should he put up with more investigations? Should he cooperate with more witch hunts? I'm, I'm inclined to say no. And I'm not an attorney. I don't play on TV. I know I, I make that joke a lot. But <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I'm not the only one who has that, that thought process. So tomorrow on the show, we will be hearing some audio from um, Joe DeGeneva, who has this knack for kind of like, he'll say something about what he thinks the president's going to do. And then a few weeks later, it happens. It's almost like they're simpatico or communicating on the, on the side, whatever. So there's something that the president has learned. I think he learned from the mistakes of Nixon and Clinton. And he basically just gritted his teeth and rode the investigations out. And that can be a little bit of a lesson for us. And we're going through something difficult. The instinct is to drop and run. Just get out of there. Get Just end it. Do whatever you can to get away from the actual um, number or the, the, not the number, the the negative consequence or whatever's happening, the persecution, if you will, whatever. We don't want to do that. We don't want to run away. President Trump held it out. Um, he also, just as a side note, pardoned Scooter Libby, which was an error that Bush 43 didn't actually rectify. Um, and so, you know, the, the obstruction of justice charge is something that I don't think the Democrats are going to give up on. I also don't think it's going to go anywhere, but they don't have anything left to talk about. And by continuing that, they're hoping to get some of their ratings back. I noticed another story, yet another story about the declining ratings of all three of the kind of opposition networks. And if they would just report straight news, I'm sure they could get some of their viewers back because people do want to know what's going on in the world. But if it's only going to be anti-Trump network and President Trump has been exonerated from, you know, Russian collusion and, and all of that then they're probably not going to get those viewers back. Now, I am also going to be, just a preview, I'm going to be checking in with Paula Bolliard of PJ Media. She has a story about homeschoolers and homeschool families. Um, and the story is actually over on Fox News. And she's pretty upset that Fox News is taking the tack that homeschool families need to be regulated. And there's a lot more to the story. So there's, there's kind of two sides to it. And one of the sides is kind of unexpected when I was reading it. So I want to preview that. We're going to see if we can get her back on the program to talk about that. She wrote a piece for PJ Media and in response to the piece over at Fox News. So we'll see what we can do about that. Um, and then for the rest, so you got Bill Barr, yesterday's testimony. And I don't know about you guys. I, I wasn't able to see as much of it as I wanted to. I have so much going on right now with the one student the middle kid is graduating from high school. Our college student's coming home from her first year of college. And then the younger one, um, she's along for the ride, but she's got some stuff going on too. And so I have not been able to sit and, and kind of really absorb all of the testimony that I wanted to. I've just been able to catch, you know, chunks of it. But It's pretty amazing the way Bill Barr handled the Democrats yesterday. Let me give you just a little taste of what I'm talking about. Blumenthal was asking A.G. Barr about whether or not he made a memorandum of his conversation 
about the Mueller report? And Barr says, no, I didn't. Blumenthal, did anyone, either you or anyone on your staff, memorialize your conversation with Robert Mueller? And Barr said, yes. Blumenthal said, may we have those notes? Barr said, no. Blumenthal said, well, why not? Barr said, why should you have them? (laughs) I think it's perfect. So is it possible that Barr might be even more Trump-tastic than Donald Trump? If so, yes, yeehaw, giddy up. Let's 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 see this thing through. I thought it was pretty fantastic because they couldn't answer. So if he'd said, "Why should you have them?" and he he said, "Because of Article this, Section that, or you know, USC this or that, or any kind of law," and he'd had some good reasoning behind it, that would have been much more interesting. A good comeback, being prepared, you know, knowing the answer to every question that you're going to ask. That's a legal tactic. He didn't have an answer. Why should you have them? And he didn't have an answer to that. Barr had some other moments um, that, that in the, the hearing. One of his moments is, is a visual one where he's being questioned and he goes to take a drink of water out of his water bottle and he stops for a second and turns and makes, pulls a face like, you know, and then goes back to drinking the water. And someone's made a gif out of that, which that gif will be so useful um, in all of our little text messages to family members when someone's railing on about something that we are not concerned about or, do, or no longer care about. Knowing that we have to treat everyone like our neighbor <laughs> still. Um, so there's that. And, and I'm really glad that, that he went and then today didn't go. So you might have heard some of the drama about today where the Democrats had actually called him into the house and, but they weren't going to only be the ones questioning him. Cause he is, you know, it's part of his job to show up before congressional committees and answer their questions as the attorney general that has been done. In fact, you might remember Eric Holder was held in contempt of court for refusing to come in and speak to the Republicans about fast and furious that happened. Notice the Democrats never talk about that. So anyway, AG Barr refused to show up this morning because it was going to look like an impeachment proceeding because they weren't going to be the ones answering, asking the questions. The questions were going to be asked by individual attorneys that they were going to bring in who weren't sitting members of Congress. He refused to participate in that visual farce. And I think it's right. And then they tried to make a big, you know, kind of meme worthy event out of it by having one of the Democrats break out a, bu- a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and eat that. And again, I say, How much political theater do we need to create here when there are so many other issues that the American people would like Congress to work on? Namely, where is the budget? Where is it? Why are the Democrats not submitting one? And I ask people who sent them to to run Congress over the Republicans, why is it that we keep sending people to Congress who don't want to operate the government in the same way that we operate our homes and businesses? Why do we continue to allow that to happen? So it's pretty interesting um, that that happened, that, that Bill Barr actually is more laid back and just late, just, just basically he's, he's unfazed by the entire course of events that's swirling around him. Now, the last thing I want to talk about this segment, um, last segment of the show until tomorrow, is California's growth. So, you know, I've talked a a few times, I've mentioned that you got a lot of population loss out of New York, California, uh, and Illinois. 
And it's driven by these horrible policies, the high taxation, the single party rule. It's just people are dive bombing out of there. Well, the L.A. Times is now reporting that California's 2018 population growth was the slowest in state history. New demographic data now show that there are shifting immigration patterns, declining birth rates and economic strains that make it very difficult for people to afford to live in California. Now, the Golden State actually added about 18,000 people to their population last year, which is a growth rate of 0.047. Now, anti-populist policies like welfare for illegal aliens, high taxes, and the high-speed train to nowhere, you remember that one with Gavin Newsom and, and all that, the middle class can't survive in these circumstances, in these conditions. California is actually kind of being converted over from um, a a normal American state to one in which a significant portion of the population is foreign born. I always talk about a quarter of Californians being illegal aliens. Well, 27% of the population is foreign born and up to 5 million are there illegally. And I know Every single time I hear these numbers, I always wonder how accurate they are because they're always, you know, skewed downwards. It's kind of unbelievable. And I hate to see it because California is a beautiful state and there are a ton of beautiful people in it who deserve some good governance and constitutionally limited government. All right, citizens, God bless you. Broadcasting from the heartland of America, I'm Stacey Washington. This has been Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.